Good morning. It's good to be with you today. Uh, some of you might remember a football player by the name of uh, Todd Marinovich. Um, he, he, uh, he was in high school in the late 80s, uh, drafted in 91. Todd um, was a high school uh, football legend in Southern California. He, he demolished all the previous uh, records for quarterbacks in Southern California. He came to national attention when Sports Illustrated published an article titled, Bread to be a Superstar, that discussed his unique upbringing under his, far, uh, under his father, Marv uh, Marinovich, who wanted to turn his son into the perfect quarterback. Uh, the article declared uh, Marinovich as America's first test tube athlete Marv Marinovich had assembled a team of advisors to help Todd with every aspect of the game. Um, in, in a noted passage, the article describes this. It says, he's never eaten a Big Mac or an Oreo or a Ding Dong. When he went to birthday parties as a kid, he would take his own cake and ice cream to avoid sugar and refined white flour. He would eat homemade ketchup prepared with honey he did, uh, he did consume beef, but not the kind injected with hormones. He ate only unprocessed dairies. He teethed on a frozen kidney. I always expect bean to be after there, and it's not there, so I'm trusting that's what it means. When Todd was one month old, Marv was already working on his son's physical conditioning. One month old. He stretched his hamstrings. Push-ups were next. Marv invented a game in which Todd would try to lift a medicine ball onto the kitchen counter. Marv also put him on a balance beam. Both of these activities grew easier when Todd learned to walk. <laughs> kind of funny, kind of not, because it's this kid's life. Um, I mean, it's okay to laugh. I didn't mean to shame you. Um, <laughs> the, uh, there was a football in Todd's crib from day one. Not a real NFL football, says Marv. That would be sick. It was a stuffed football. So Todd uh, had a crazy... Uh, upbringing. Uh, he, he went on to, to star at USC. Um, he had his troubles there, but, but he was a phenomenal quarterback. He was, he was dubbed the, the robo quarterback because he, he just made the right decisions every time. Uh, in 1991, he was drafted uh, in the first round by the Raiders. He was taken uh, ahead of Brett Favre to give you some context. Um, he only lasted two seasons in the NFL. Throughout his playing career, Clear back into high school, he, he battled substance abuse. He used all kinds of drugs. Um, there, there's a, a game, um, after he went out of the NFL, he, he made multiple attempts at a comeback. He, he played in the Arena Football League. Actually, I think he still has the record for most touchdown passes in a single game of 10 touchdowns. But in, uh, during halftime of one of those games, he, he burnt his hand so badly on a crack pipe that, that it was bleeding profusely, and he had to get it bandaged without anybody knowing what had happened. His, his life was just riddled with problems. It's a sad, sad story. He's, even as recently as a year ago, um, he, he just keeps getting busted uh, on, on drug charges. For a while, Todd's dad, and Todd's dad, Marv, he was, uh, he was actually hired as the very first strength and conditioning uh, coach for the NFL. Like, the, the, the strength and conditioning that athletes do today, it really started with this man in so many ways. Um, so while it looked like Marv knew what he was doing as a father, um, he helped maximize his son's athletic ability for sure. Uh, life is clearly, uh, clearly about more than football. He was a good coach of athleticism, but as a father, he really didn't know what was best for his son. 
intellectually, I think most Christians would profess that Jesus knows what is best for us. He would say, yeah, God, God knows what is good for us. But when life gets challenging, when things get hard, when life takes a turn that we don't expect, we can begin to question, does God really know what's best for me? Jesus, do you really hear my prayers? Because I wanted you to answer that prayer months ago. We're going to look at this passage in John 11, and there's three kind of keys that I want you, as you hear it, as we go through it, to to think about. The first is Jesus helps refocus us onto God's glory. He's he's shifting our perspective onto God's glory. The second, what we see him do is out of love. The the pastor will make that very, very clear. It's out of love for Mary and Martha and Lazarus and, uh, and, and the others that get to witness this as well. And the third is there's a response here of belief to God's glory. So I want you to keep those in mind. He's refocusing us onto God's glory. This is done out of love, and belief is the response to God's glory. Let's read the passage, John chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and his sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and his sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus Jesus has spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. So in last week's passage, as you remember, uh, the, the crowd of Jewish people, they asked Jesus to speak plainly. Are you the Christ? Are you really the Messiah? In chapter 11, by Jesus ra- raising Lazarus from the dead, he will clearly show that he is the Christ. And in chapter 11 and 12, chapters 11 and 12 kind of serve as this, this hinge between uh, the two halves of the book, 1 through 10, Jesus' ministry, and then 13 through 20, the, the, the passion Christ, leading up to Christ's death. Right off the bat here in, in the first couple of verses, we, we see something different than so many of the other accounts in this gospel. We, we get Lazarus' name, and if we think back, that doesn't happen much. So often the people that Jesus interacts with, the people that he heals, the people he's talking to, we don't get their names. In, in chapter 2, the wedding, we never find out whose wedding it was. We don't know his relationship with those people. Chapter 4, the Samaritan woman, we just know that she was a woman coming to the well that had five husbands. 
chapter 5, the, the guy that gets healed at the pool, it just calls him uh, this man. We know he's been an invalid for 38 years. Chapter 9, it's just the man born blind. But here, here we get his name. It, it, it's Lazarus. He's from Bethany. He's a sister named Mary, a sister named Martha. John is, is showing us that, that there's a relationship here. These are not strangers. They're not even just acquaintances. He, he wants us to know that, that this relationship is real, that they loved Jesus and that Jesus loved him. And in the very next verse, verse, verse 2, is peculiar. It says, It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. And I'm sure many of you are probably familiar with that story, but the strange thing is, in John's account, it hasn't happened yet. It happens in chapter 12. So, so John gives us this detail now, and, and we have to think, well, what, what are you doing here, John? This isn't sloppy writing. Right? John's doing this on purpose. And if it, if it was your first time reading the story, you, you get this detail, and, and, and I think it makes you anticipate, wow, what's, what's, what's going to happen with this Mary woman? Why would she... Why would she wipe Jesus' feet with her hair? If you've read it before, you're familiar with it, and I think John anticipates that we'll read this gospel over and over and over again. It reminds us and gives us context. Okay, this is who Mary is. This is who it is. For the first readers, the very first readers, I'm sure that many of them, probably not all, but many of them had heard the story before. So it helped them understand, okay, this this is who she is. This is the person that, that John is talking about here. So John, he wants us to know this relationship is significant. He wants us to know this relationship matters. He's going to say multiple times that, that he loved them, that he loved Mary, that he loved Martha, that he loved Lazarus. Jesus knew this family. He loved them. They knew him, and they loved him. Jesus wants what is best for them. Verse 3 so the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. So they send a messenger, and the messenger doesn't even say Lazarus' name. Just says, the, the one who you, whom you love. And Jesus knows. This is Lazarus. Jesus is working, or John is working hard to make sure that we see this relationship here is loving through and through. He doesn't want it to miss it, so he doesn't want us to miss it, so I don't want us to miss it either. And in the Gospels, we, we don't get to read much about Jesus' friendship. But relationships like this, for whatever reason, we don't get much of them. So it's interesting that John here gives us a glimpse. But, but this family definitely had a, a real relationship with Jesus. Let's, uh, let's bring our truth statement up before we, uh, before we get into the meat of this passage. Even in the sufferings of those he loves, Jesus sees opportunity to glorify God and increase faith. Even in the sufferings of those he loves, Jesus sees opportunity to glorify God and increase faith. Jesus does what is best for us. Jesus sees what is best, and he sees that glorifying God is, is necessary, and that it will, it will grow their faith, and he does it because he loves them. He loves us by doing what is the absolute best for us. We need God to be glorified so that we can see him, so that we can know him, so that we can grow in faith, so, so that we can have this, this real, genuine relationship with him. Verse 4, But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. 
He says the illness doesn't lead to death. It, it will be fatal. There, there's no doubt about that. Lazarus dies. He's dead for four days, but it will not be final. It will end with Lazarus resurrecting to the glory of God. Jesus will demonstrate that he truly is Lord over everything, that, that no one, no thing is more powerful than Jesus, including death. And as we, as we hear Lazarus' resurrection story, as we read it, we're to look forward to Jesus' resurrection that's coming later in this book. Right? It reminds us, it makes us think of the differences even. It'll be interesting next week as we get into this to see some of the differences between Lazarus' resurrection and, and Jesus' resurrection. I think it also helps us think about, if you know Christ, your resurrection, that we will be raised to life with Christ, that that will happen, that death is not the end for us. So he says this illness does not lead to death. It's for God's glory. And when John uses the word glory in his gospel, it has to do with God being revealed. It has to do with God being seen, correctly understood. Okay, so it's not just, sometimes, sometimes when I think about glory, I think God being praised, which is, is a part of glory. But when John says it, he, he's saying, no, this is God's very self-disclosure, right? And back in chapter 1, we talked about Jesus being the very self-disclosure of God. So that's what's happening here. This death is going to be used for, for God to be revealed, for Christ to be seen as, as he is, who he truly is. He came in the flesh so that humanity could, in fact, know God and come to him and be saved from their sin. This is similar to what Jesus said about the blind man in chapter 9. In verse 3, he said, um, he said, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. That's what was going on there. And, and here, this death is that God can be glorified, that Jesus will be revealed, and that people could respond in faith. So God was going to use this to clearly demonstrate who Jesus was. Jesus has a perspective that we, we lack on our own. He moves the focus, he moves the focal point off of death and, and, and onto God's glory. And we need Jesus to change our focal point so often. So often I find myself focused on things that are, that are anything but God-glorifying. Without Jesus helping us see him, without Jesus helping us long for his glory, we miss it because we focus on the wrong things. Naturally, I make life about myself. You make life about yourself. Jesus could see what this family was incapable of seeing, and we don't blame them for not being able to see what Jesus could see. But he knew how this would bring glory to the Father. He knew how it would bring glory to himself. He knew how it would impact their faith, and this is what they needed. And the same is true today. Jesus is never caught off guard by the hardships we face. Christ is never caught off guard by the difficulties, the, the pain that, that maybe you're in today, or, or maybe that's coming in the near future. We are in our circumstances. We're, we're stuck, so to speak, in our circumstances, and Jesus is with us in those circumstances, suffering with us, but he's also not limited to those circumstances. He's outside of those circumstances. He's right there with you, and yet he has the unique perspective. And we need him to shift our focal point onto God's glory, that we would long to see God being glorified, revealed, and known. So Jesus, or John, is helping us as readers not get fixated on the death of Lazarus, but the glory of God, because Lazarus' death 
was allowed in order for God to be clearly revealed. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and his sister and Lazarus. So, or therefore, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And if you're paying attention, that's, those sentences don't seem to go together. He says, he loved them, so he stayed longer. Right? And that doesn't add up to us. That doesn't compute. We, we expect that when you love someone and something's, there's some emergency that you, you drop everything or, or grab what you can and, and take off to them, right? Take off to, to help them, to at least be with them. My wife has never felt loved when I came home hours later than expected. My kids don't feel loved when I miss their events. But we need to remember that God's ways are not our ways. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 often help me recalibrate that. God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as, high, or for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. God's ways are better than ours. They're so much better than ours. So do you trust that God's ways are better than yours? Do you, do you trust that God actually knows what's best for you, and it's, and it's easy to trust when the sun's shining, when, when you like your job, when relationships are going well, when there's, when there's some money in the bank account. But it gets hard to trust that God's ways are better than yours when you're depressed, when, when someone you love is making terrible decisions, when your health fails, when when your boss just rides you over everything, when you're so, so stressed or anxious that you can barely even sleep, when life happens, it can be hard to trust because life is hard and, and um, we need to not buy into the narrative that it should be easy. Right? That, that, that temptation as Christians is real. There, there are a lot of Christians that bind to the lie over and over again that life should be easy. As long as I follow God, life should be easy. And we should be thankful when, when it is easy, when it's not hard, when, when we don't face a ton of trials. But we need to understand that there are hard circumstances because we live in a broken world. Sin is ravaged creation. And all of us, too, we contribute, right? We contribute to the hardships, at least in small ways, all of us have made life harder for other people through our own sinful choices. John 10 reminded us that the thief doesn't just come to irritate us. Right? The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. In John 16, Jesus will say, I've said these things to you that you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. You, you will face trouble. There's no doubt about it, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So when life is hard, will I trust Jesus? Will, will, I, will I plead with him to use this trial for his glory? So remember earlier I said there's, there's three keys here that I want you to look for in the passage. Jesus is refocusing us onto God's glory, that what he's going to do is out of love for Mary, Martha, for Lazarus, and, and, and he's going to produce belief by demonstrating his glory. Glory's at stake. There's no doubt that the purpose of this death is to glorify God. Love is a motivating factor for Jesus, so he has God's glory in view, and he has 
his love for these people in view, and he, he wants people to believe. He wants people to continue to be glorified by believing in him, by seeing him rightly. And all that's great, but what about the pain? Right, this family went through four days of, of misery as they mourned the loss of Lazarus. And my guess is all of us can relate to, to pain. Most of us have probably lost someone. Maybe all of us have already lost someone, and it just it felt like it was way too early, like it shouldn't have been their time yet. And, and you, you go to bed, and then that first morning you wake up, and you, you, you just you, you want to trick yourself into really believing it was just a nightmare and it didn't happen. But then pretty quickly you realize, no, they're gone. They're gone. And, and maybe you wish that, they, that, that you could have died in, in their place. Mary and Martha were in terrible pain. Horrible pain here. So this doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't care about your pain. Our Lord will take care of pain. Pain will not be a part of heaven. He will take care of pain. Jesus cares deeply about our pain. He feels our pain. Next week, we'll see, actually, that he hates the pain that they're in. And I'm not talking about where Jesus wept, but there's a couple words before that shows us that, that he's angry about the pain that they're in. His love for Martha and Mary and Lazarus is deep. However, Jesus is not a, a helicopter parent, right, that, that, that safety proofs everything. Does he spare us from suffering? Yeah, no doubt that, that God spares us from suffering. Some, some things we know like, oh man, God totally spared me from that hard, hard thing. And there's many more things that we're clueless about, hardships that Jesus protected us from that, that we will never know. But our Lord knows suffering. He suffered for us. The Father watched the Son die an excruciating death on that cross. So God is not afraid of enduring pain for what is more valuable, for what is eternal. Jesus being glorified is so very valuable. Believing, people believing and knowing Jesus is very valuable. And it has to be because these people went through this misery of a loved one. And yet Jesus, he says to his disciples in verse 14, I'm glad this happened so that you may believe. I'm glad I wasn't there is what he says, so that you may believe. And I think this helps us see how precious belief is. But this passage and this, this verse certainly challenge our desire for God to be glorified. It's funny, about a month ago, I don't even know why, but I started praying for us regularly that God would increase our longing for him to be glorified. I can't, I don't know why. I don't know why I started praying that, but I started praying it regularly. And then I come to this passage, and I'm challenged, like, whoa, do I, do I want God to be glorified? Do I long for Christ to be glorified? If you've been to a Christian church, if you know their mission statement, it probably has something to do with God's glory. Ours starts off, it says we exist. Harvest Community Church exists. God to be glorified by making disciples, right? We say we're about God's glory, but how important is it really? Is God's glory, is God being revealed more important than your comfort? Because if I were Martha and Mary, I would at least prefer that Jesus glorify God by stopping my brother from dying, not letting him die. Jesus knew that the glory of God was worth more than four heart-wrenching days of pain. We want to avoid pain. We do all kinds of things to avoid pain. But Jesus, in his love, let them go through the pain, and he met them in that pain because he knew what they needed. They needed to see who he truly was. They needed to trust in him. So Jesus lets this 
family experienced this pain, but it was not purposeless pain. I, I don't believe that God ever wastes pain. He uses all of it. Romans 8.28 tells us that, that God is working all things for the good of those who, who know Jesus. Right? He, he's making us more and more like Christ. James 1.2 says, Consider pure joy when you face trials of many kinds, because it's going to produce all these things in you that God is doing. So he uses everything for his glory and for the good of those who trust him. He's working all things together to make us more and more like Christ. Specifically here in chapter 11, he loved them, and so he purposely let them go through a great loss so that they could gain what was best for them, to see Jesus, to know Jesus, to, to believe in Jesus, for their faith to grow deeper and deeper. They needed to know Jesus more then they need to not experience the pain of losing Lazarus, which is hard for us to, to, to grasp. So do we know how important it is for us to know Jesus, to see Jesus as he truly is? Our response to God's glory is belief. When we, when we see God's glory, the proper response is to believe. We see more of who Jesus is, and we believe our faith grows deeper and deeper. That's what Jesus wanted for this family, for the disciples, for anyone that was watching. Verse 7, then after this he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going to go there again? It wasn't just scary for Jesus that they wanted to stone him. It was scary for his disciples. They remembered them picking up stones to kill Christ. I'm sure they felt threatened as well. So they say to Jesus, are we really going to go back there? Are you really going to go back there? Because it's not just dangerous for you. It's dangerous for us. And Jesus answered them. He said, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. The working hours are the daylight hours, the 12, approximately 12 hours of the day. So he's saying, of course, it's daylight. There's work to do. It's at night that it's dangerous to work, that you stumble. Jesus says, I have work to do. I'm going to get my work done. Verse 11, after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. So Jesus has a supernatural knowledge that Lazarus is now dead. Back in verse 4, he, he said illness, which makes me think that, that Jesus knew that at that point he was still alive. Jesus makes it clear that he's going to go awaken him. Lazarus is dead, but Jesus is going to, he's going to awaken him as if he's just asleep. The New Testament describes the death of the believer like sleep because death is not the end for those who know Jesus. Jesus will wake us up to live with him forever. Verse 12, the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. So they miss the metaphor here. We know, we've heard this story. We know that Lazarus dies, but, but they didn't know what had happened. And they're thinking about him being sick. I'm sure, I'm sure they're scared, as I just said. They're scared to go back there. So maybe thinking, hey, if he's just asleep, like, he can figure this out. It'll work out. We don't need to go there, Jesus. So Jesus says in verse 14, Jesus plainly told them, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. 
Right? Jesus knows what is best, and he's going to use this to strengthen their faith. Verse 16, Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. And Thomas gets a bad rap with Christians, right? We've nicknamed him Doubting Thomas um, because he couldn't believe that Jesus rose from the dead without seeing him in person. And I, th I think a lot of us probably would love to be able to get that proof. So we, we kind of make fun of Thomas. But here we, we see a side of Thomas that seems really courageous, that he's dedicated, he's committed to Jesus. He misunderstands what's coming. He misunderstands the necessity of Jesus' death. But his words could not be more true for every one of Jesus' disciples, even today, that in order to follow Jesus, we have to pick up our cross, that following Jesus is a call to put to death life apart from Christ, and we get to follow him wherever he leads. Our truth statement again is even in the sufferings of those he loves, Jesus sees opportunity to glorify God and increase faith. And this is what God does. If you don't know Jesus, Jesus is a redeemer. Jesus takes what is horrible and redeems it. Where there's death, he brings life. Just like, just like we'll see here next week, he's going to give life to Lazarus. But it wasn't just Lazarus that was affected. It was Mary, Martha, the disciples, anyone that got to see. Our, our, our God is a redeemer, and he knows what's absolutely best for us. And as, as we continue in the passage next week, I, I, want, I want to encourage you not to dismiss the pain that they went through. Um, it, it's, I think it's tempting to dismiss the pain of Mary and Martha because in the end, Jesus rises Lazarus from the dead. They, they grieved the death of their brother, and Jesus came. And he met them with his grace in that pain. If you're a Christian, our fate isn't that different, right? Something very similar will happen. Every one of us will die. But those who have trusted in Jesus will be raised to life with him. Our loved ones will grieve. We might be fearful. Dying might hurt really badly. But there is certainty that Christ will raise us to life with him. That death is not the end for those who trust in him. Jesus dies died and rose again so that we could have life by believing in him, that his blood shed for us was enough to pay for our sins. Our prayer team's going to be in the back, and there are all kinds of reasons you could go back for prayer, but, but I was just thinking about some of these this week for you. I've been thinking a lot about pain, obviously, and, and, and I know there's a couple things I know that are going on. Some of you are going through hard, hard stuff right now, and, and I don't even know if you heard a word that I said or that anybody said this morning, because you're just hurting so badly. Go back and be prayed for. You don't have to tell the prayer person your story. You can just ask for prayer, or you can tell them the whole thing, whatever you want, but, but go be prayed for. If you know someone that's going through it right now, and you just hurt for them, man, go back. Go back and receive prayer for that. If you're angry with God about something, right? If, if you heard that part that Jesus loved Mary and Martha, so he waited two days longer, if, if that struck a chord in you and you realize, like, man, I'm still angry with God about this thing, go back, confess that, be prayed for. If you don't know that, that, that you actually trust that God has what's best for you, go, go receive prayer. I pray right now. Jesus, you, you are the life giver. You, you do know what's best, Lord. It's hard for us sometimes. We, we can't escape our circumstances. Only by your grace can we ever 
even want you to be glorified, God. Lord, I pray for, for my brothers and sisters in Christ here this morning. God, I pray that we would long for your glory, that you, you would do that in us, that you would refocus us no matter what's going on, whether this has been a great week or one of the worst weeks ever. Would you focus us onto your glory? Jesus, would you help us so that we can believe in you, so that we can trust in you, Lord? Jesus, we, we do love you. Would you help us to see who you are? It's in your name we pray. Amen.